0: Nice to see you this morning. It's good to be here with family, as always. I'm incredibly excited and very privileged to be able to launch into our new series this morning. Uh, so if, if you weren't here last week, um, Phil spoke to the fact that we're about to start a new service, uh, new series, and it's called Mimicking the Macedonians. And it's all about our finances and those who have been here and called North End Church or Zion, our family we we'll know that we don't talk about finances a lot. We don't hand out uh, the offering bag or anything like that. But God calls us to still steward and to speak to and to teach in all areas of our life. And and so the eldership and um, with God's very strong impression have said that we need to spend some time speaking around finances. And so we we faithfully have been working behind the scenes to to make sure that we walk in that with God's DNA all over it. And so we've been putting this lesson and series together and it's been fantastic. And this morning I get to introduce that. And I thought the best way to do that is to to look at God's generosity. We have a generous God, don't we? So I want to start this morning fairly interactive. And I want to ask you, what does God's generosity look like for you? What does it mean when we say God is generous? What does that look like to you? And I want you to yell it out. How is God generous? Meets every need. What else? He gave, yeah. He gave us His Son. He gave us everything we need. Yeah. It's not just financial. No, you're right. Yeah. What else does God's generosity speak of? Above what we deserve. Sorry. Yeah. Provides, beauty. Provides beauty in nature. Yeah. Anything else? Hope? Takes de- delight in blessing us. Grace was another one. Yeah. Unconditional love. Come on, that's a generous God. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Some some forgiveness. Come on, that's a generous God. Yeah. You know, there is so much that we can, if we stop and pause and look at how generous our God is, we probably get wild. And overcome with emotion. Because when we look at ourselves in the light of God's generosity, who are we? God is awesome. But if I was to be honest, I would say that, because uh, there's a lot of good Christian answers come from, the, come from the floor. And answers I would say too. But if I was to be honest and I would look at generosity, I would say that for me, I have quite often viewed God's generosity by what I can, the tangible. What has he done for me? What have I received? What do I have? If I was to be honest, that's how I would probably view God's generosity. Um, Because when we look at generosity, we tend to look at uh, when we look around at each other, we look at what other people's generosity is like, and we say, "Oh my gosh, you shouldn't have done that. That was so amazing. You have blessed me. You've been so generous. You've received something. You've got something." And and if something has provided for you financially or gone out of their way to do something for you and blessed you, you think, wow, you've just been so generous in what you've done. And, and so and I think sometimes we can look at God's generosity like that. We can view God with this, uh, you know, this mindset of the bigger the generosity or the bigger the gift, the bigger the generosity. And the bigger the thing that God does for us, the bigger that God is. And I think the risk that we run sometimes is that if we view God through that mindset, we actually miss the bigness of God in the smallest of things. Our God is big regardless of the size of, the, of his generosity. And it's incredibly amazing. Um, and we can look at that, what we don't have and what we do have, and we can have this perspective of who God's gener- what God's generosity is like. And we base it on our circumstances or our situations. You know, if we don't have much, then maybe God's not as generous. But if we've got a lot, then God's been really generous. And the risk we start running is that we, in that is that we start comparing each other, oh my goodness, they've got this massive, beautiful house, and God's been so generous to them, to them. and they've got this wonderful job, and God's been so generous to them. And, and actually in fact, what you're doing is you're saying, God's not as generous to me. Because our, persp- our perspective of generosity tends to be of the bigger generosity, the, the bigger the God. And we miss the bigness of God and the smallest of his generosities. And that's what I want to look at this morning. Because if you can think about the times that you, like I, have been on my knees in desperation for God to do something massive. We're wanting a big God to provide a big answer. You know, we go to him and, God, you own a cattle on a thousand hills. You know, we quote the scriptures. We're supposed to be the head and not the tail. You know, Come on, God, I'm a good Christian. I go to church, I serve, I can, you know, I even tithe, and, and I, 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 <laughs> Hoping that this big God will come through with this big gesture of generosity. Well, one of the problems I've just discovered with that is that I've determined what his generosity should look like because I'm the one that's asking. And so my perception as God is that I need this and I need it in this way. God, I need your big generosity to come the way I want it. I put barriers around what his generosity can look like. And so I determine what it should look like. And then if I don't see it coming in the way that I expect it to come or want it to come, I'm go back to God with Scripture. And God, it says that if, if you're a good father and a son asks for bread, would you give him stones? And would he ask for a snake? Or if he asks for a fish, would you give him a snake? And Yet I feel like I'm holding a bag of stones and I feel like I'm being bit by a snake because my perception of God's generosity it hasn't met what I was. And yet, realistically, I am probably holding bread, I am probably holding fish. But because I placed parameters around my expectation of what His generosity is, I've missed the blessing of, that He's given me. And I've got a testimony I wanted to share. Around that, because this time three years ago, uh, God said to me that we were going to move. In our current, we were in our previous location, and God said to me, He was generous enough to say that, "Hey, you're going to shift." And by that, I didn't mean that I heard an audible voice or uh, the heavens opened and there was this cloud formation of "You're moving." No, (laughs) it was just this inescapable impression that God said that, hey, prepare yourself. You're on the move. And so the more I pursued that, the more I shared that with Shani and stuff, faith rose. Two months later, our landlords come and said, look, I really hate to do this to you, but you're gonna, you're gonna have to, we want our house back and you're gonna have to shift. And we're like, there's no worries. God's already told us. You know, we'd spent two months already in prepping. And so, and he gave us 11 weeks notice. And so we went, Faith, we had faith to, to climb mountains because God had already told me we we're going to shift. I, you know, we had a family of how many? Nine at that stage. Uh, seven. Sorry, you got to do the math when you got that many. I got, you know, we had seven kids, and it was my wife and I. And you know, previously we'd only had three when we moved into this house. So we come from this little tiny shack into this big home that was suitable and big enough for our big family. What's God got for us? Man, I can't wait to see what he's got, he's already let me know two months prior to actually knowing, so God's got this massive plan, and I can't wait to see what that is, God's huge, my God is big, my faith rose, and I was excited, 17th of September, which was 11 weeks later, we sat in this home empty, everything everything that we owned, packed on trailers, covered, it was pouring off rain, stacked in the backs of cars, and there was a group of us sitting in a house and we had nowhere to go, and we had to be out by two o'clock. (laughs) Ah, oh. <laughs> you see, my, my younger brother had rang me the night before and he'd said to me that uh, oh, his tenants that were supposed to move in that Friday, that day, didn't even show up. So he rang them and said, what are you going? Ah, oh, are you going to move in? No, we've changed our mind. We don't want to move in there now. And So he had gone and find some new tenants, and, but there was a three-week gap, and so he rang me that Friday night and said, hey, look, it's, you can go in there for three weeks. It's this tiny three-bedroom little shack if you want it. And I'm like, nah, no thanks. God's got big for me. God's got massive. I've got a big family. I can't squeeze. When you've got that many people, you hoard some stuff. right? <laughs> to put all that in the three-bedroom house on a rainy day is just not God's plan. right? Doesn't look what, I, what it's supposed to look like. One at 10 o'clock that morning that we're supposed to move out, I do the spiritual thing, race into church, shut the doors, turn the worship music on, God, you own a cattle on a thousand hills. Yeah? My faith is big. My faith's not rocked. I know my God can do suddenlies. I know my God can do last minutes. And so my expectations and my parameters around how God was going to come through was one specific way, waiting for that phone call. You know, waiting for that phone call saying, hey, I hear you need a property and... um, We've just got one come available. It's empty now. You can move in. It's big. It's massive. That was my expectations. That's what I was waiting for because, man, my God's a big God. So we, we sat there. One o'clock in the afternoon. Had an hour to go. No phone call. I said to Shani, oh, we might have to go to plan B, which was our plan, apparently, to go move into this tiny little three-bedroom house, do this whole process, figure out what the heck's going on and do that, two o'clock comes along, One fifty nine. God, you've got one minute to go. (laughs) I don't know what the people who were sitting there waiting for us to move were thinking. Crazy, empty house, all our stuff in the rain, and we're waiting for a house. Two o'clock comes, (sighs) let's go. We move into this tiny three-bedroom little home, and pouring down rain, and we squash it in And for three weeks. That's where we lived to do it all again. Three weeks, Shani and I spent walking the streets of where we lived, praying to God, seeking to God. Faith is still there, God, you can still come through, but I'm not sure what's going on. A little bit lost, a little bit confused, and we walked a particular street every night and said, man, we would really love to live here. This would be such a great street. God, you're awesome. Um, So at the end of the three weeks, we split all our furniture into two different locations because we were going to move in with Mel and Phil Atwood, and we only had a bag each and that was for a, supposed to be a month. Turned out a little bit longer. But uh on our second trip of putting stuff into the storage, I get a phone call. Hi, here you've been looking for a house. Our tenants have just told us that they're moving out. And we have this big six-bedroom home, two-bathroom, two bed, two lounges. It's massive. And it happens to be on the same street that we've been praying for. God is massive. And so we cheer and we celebrate. We still. Have to wait for them to move out, and I'm praying to God saying, what? what was the three-week delay? What was that all about? And God brought us to a passage in Daniel 10 when Daniel was fasting and praying for three weeks. And then this, this angel turns up, and I I I'm gonna act out what I think it looked like. Okay, <laughs> this is what I do. This angel turns up and he's like, <laughs> yeah. Daniel, Daniel. I heard your prayers. God heard your prayers. But I've been fighting. I've been fighting the Prince of Persia. And for three weeks, Angel Michael had to come, had to fight. But I'm here. I'm here. God said to me, I had to park here for three weeks because I was fighting for you. I heard your prayers. I knew what you needed. I knew what you wanted. And I'm a big, generous God. But I'm fighting for you too. How about a generous God that fights on your behalf and you don't even know he's doing it? God's generous. God is bigger than what our expectations are. So here I stood holding my three-bedroom home as a bag of stones and it was God's provision and God's generosity the whole time. And when I saw that, I recognized that, God, you are bigger than I could ever possibly dream or imagine. Yes, you shifted me for three weeks because you were fighting for me. What an amazing God we serve. So in that three weeks, you can imagine I had some doubts. I'm not the only one that has had doubts. John the Baptist went through this. And I want us to look at a a scripture, a passage in Matthew 11. So that was my introduction. So if you want to open to your Bible in in Matthew 11, we want to read a piece of scripture about John the Baptist. In verse 1, it says there, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach to the towns of Galilee. Now Jesus has just commissioned his 12 disciples to go out and preach the good news. And Jesus then himself travels on to Galilee. This is where John is. John's currently in prison. He's about four weeks out if you do the timeline from getting his head cut off. Not in a good space. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent to his disciples to go and ask Jesus, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Think about that. This is John the Baptist. Are you the one? To come, or should we think of someone else? This is John the Baptist. This is Jesus' cousin, who's six months older, who in the very womb of his mother when Jesus came close, danced. This is John the Baptist who, who spent his whole life preparing the way for Jesus. And when Jesus came to be baptized, John the Baptist is the one that said, Behold the Son of God, the one who's going to take away the sinners of the world. John the Baptist is the one who got to baptise Jesus. Even the one, he said, whose f- shoes he wasn't even unworthy to tie. This is John the Baptist that after raised Jesus from the baptism, stood what I believe is in a big pillar of light as the cloud passed parted and the Holy Spirit came and descended upon Jesus. John saw that. John heard God's voice saying, this is my son whom I love and I am well pleased And yet John's current circumstances have him questioning, are you the one? That's crazy. But even the strongest can allow our circumstances to dictate who God we think God is. We can quite easily judge our circumstances, or judge God, sorry, by our circumstances. And this is what John is doing. Now, we've said in the church for a long time here, don't judge God by your circumstances, but judge your circumstances by God. And John's in prison and he's judging his circumstance. He's judging God by his circumstances, you see. Are you the one? Are you the one that is prophesied? Are you the one that says that you will overthrow the government and the government will be on your shoulders? Are you the one that says that you will come to set the captives free? Are you this conquering king that has been prophesied about all this time? And he goes out and asks his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one? Because my circumstances doesn't feel like you're the one. Because think about it, John's in prison and the whole culture of the time was to speak about this coming Messiah, this coming king that would overthrow the Roman political government. Who needed it more right then than John the Baptist? Jesus, if you come and overthrow the government now, I won't have to lose my head in a few weeks' time. So he's looking for Jesus. He's looking for Jesus to be the Messiah that he wants him to be in the space he needs him to be. And so Jesus has this amazing statement that he replies to, Jesus, to John with. Because John has come accustomed to the culture of the time that taught that the Messiah, this coming king, was the one that was going to do all those great things. And so that's how we saw Jesus for. That's who he needed him to be. But whenever the prophets of old prophesied about the coming Messiah, there was always two parts to it. That he was the, yes, he was going to be the conquering king. He was going to overthrow and have his kingdom last forever. But he was also going to be the suffering lamb. He's also going to be the lion, but he's going to be the lamb. He's going to be the suffering saviour. And Jesus responds to him with this in in verses 4 and 6. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Jesus reminds John of who he is. Yeah, I am the conquering king, but I am also the suffering saviour. I am the lion and I am the the lamb. I cannot be the king you want me to be because the king you want me to be means I could have nothing to do with the suffering. Because if you think about it in a political culture back then, kings would have had nothing to do with people with leprosy. They wouldn't have had anything to do with blind or the deaf or the dead. And Jesus is saying, John, no, no, You've because of your situation, you're looking at me from one aspect. God is saying, Jesus I'm bigger than that. I can't I am your conquering king, but I am the suffering lamb. Jesus is telling John, I am the one who gives sight to the blind. I am the one who gives hearing to the deaf, the resurrection to the dead. I am the one who's going to make the unclean clean, the disqualified qualified. John sits in his cell and goes, I haven't wasted my life. You are the Messiah. My whole purpose in serving and preparing a way is for you so that you become more and I become less. John's prison cell probably doesn't seem, feel like a prison cell from that moment on because his circumstances no longer allow him to see who God is, but God dictates his circumstances and what he's involved and set up in. God is, Jesus is generous to John the Baptist. Jesus told John, what did you hear and what do you see? And I really think that that's what God wants us to do when we get stuck in our own prison cell, when we're looking to God for this enormous breakthrough, his enormous generosity and our faith is dwindling. God wants to say to you, look, what do you see? What have you seen? What have you heard? Think about that for John sit in his prison cell. What have you seen? What have you heard? John spends a time in reflection of all the amazing things that he's seen in his life. He was reminded of the time he stood beside Jesus and was baptised. You know, all these things that all of a sudden John is sitting there thinking, man, I've seen God do amazing things. I've seen that he heals. I hear that he heals. I've, what has God done in your life that you can look back on and say, man, I've seen you move before God. I can have faith that you'll do it again. I've heard that you do this, and if you can do it for them, I know you're a big God and you can do it for me. You know, God is telling us that when we're in a, in a situation where we are allowing our circumstances to judge him, God say, no, no, no. Look at who I am and what I've done. I'm faithful. I'm a prayer answering God. I'm a promise keeping God. I am the head. I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but I am also the suffering saviour. In your prison, I know what you're like. And I know what it means to be where you are. And the result you're looking for might not come the way you want it to come. But this faith that rises up in John, I reckon I'd feel sorry for the guys in prison for them for the next four weeks because he knows who his Messiah is and he's out declaring how good his God is. Two weeks ago, we got the landlord's ring up in our current house. hate to have to do this to you. But we have to put the house on the market. Ah, We're not worried at all. Why? Not even a bit. Because if God can do it, done it before, he can do it again. My God is faithful. I look at the testimony of you guys and, and the things that you share, that builds faith in me. When you share about the small and the big and the amazing things that God's done in your life, that builds faith in me. Because we serve a generous God. And so when the landlords tell us, and they feel really bad because we've got eight kids now, and to evict a family of eight kids out of a home, it's got to be pretty bad. I'd feel stink. But we're not worried. Is God going to provide a big, massive home I've got no idea now. (laughs) I'm certainly not going to wait till 2 (laughs) o'clock. But my God is faithful, and I don't have to fear the unknown. I don't have to sit there and and look at our circumstances and say, Oh, my goodness, God, what are we going to do? We can't do anything. My God is bigger than my circumstances. And he's told me to look and see what he's done. He's told me to look around and see what he's doing. So when your circumstances get bigger than you, look around, look back, look at what God's done, look at what God's doing, listening to what he's doing. That's why it's incredible for you to share testimonies. Keep declaring them, keep sharing them because it builds faith in others. It lets us all know how big and generous our God is. Hopefully he fights the battles a little bit faster, but that's all right. But my God is faithful, and I know he can do it again. It might not look the same. It might not come in the same way, and that's okay. It can be tiny, but I'm looking for the bigness of God in the smallest of things. Don't get hooked on looking for the miraculous sea party miracles in your life because you get to miss the generosity of God, the fact you have a home, the fact that you have a family, you have children, you have income, you have clothes, everything That is good comes from above, the scripture tells you. God is generous and it builds faith. But that's not the only thing that Jesus said about John in that passage of scripture. In verse 7, it goes on to say that as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. And I imagine that the disciples are about to walk out the door or walk out the crowd and Jesus starts to talk about John just a little bit louder so that the disciples can also hear a little something, something to take back to John. And he says this. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Here Jesus is reminding his disciples to tell John what his purpose is, right? Because he's a little bit lost. This is the one whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way for you. Imagine that confidence builder in John when he hears the disciples tell him, Jesus is telling the crowd about your purpose. And you've actually fulfilled that. You've lived that. Come on. God speaks to John's purpose. Then he goes on to say, I tell you the truth. Among those born of woman, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. How powerful is that? You're sitting in prison thinking, Jesus, are you the one? And he tells you, yeah, I'm bigger than what you think I am. But your whole life has been of purpose and you have lived that out. And I see you as greater than anybody else that has ever been born of woman, which is everyone, you know? How powerful, how confident, how faith-building for John is that? John, Jesus inadvertently sends him a little love letter back with his disciples because he's feeling hopeless and faithless and and struggling. And John, from that period on, ah, like I said, would have converted the whole prison cell. How amazing. But what does that mean for us? He goes on to say, to you and I, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Who's in the kingdom? Who's got Jesus Christ as their Lord and saviour? Yeah. Jesus is saying that he who is the least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was the greatest born of any woman. God is sending you a love letter. That in your deepest situation and your, and your biggest struggle and, and what may seem as daunting and over, overpowering, God is a big God. And he sees you absolutely valuable. That's a personal little love note. I believe God's given to every single one of you, to me. The John the Baptist, come on, who would, John the Baptist was amazing and yet the least in the kingdom is greater than John. Wow. That's how God sees you. God sees you, God loves you, and God cares for you so much. I want to invite the band up because there we have a response. Whenever God invites us into a situation, whether it's in the way you serve, the way you give, what you do, our response to a generous God is our generosity. Whether that's, uh, and a gratitude, having that attitude of gratitude and our thankfulness, the way we serve one another. What we do with our finances is incredibly important and valuable. God is generous. And if God is calling you to be generous with your time, with your finances, with what you, God has given you, because remember, all good things from above, come from above. God's gifted us with everything. It all belongs to him. And if he's inviting you into, a, into a, a connection, into a relationship with him, and he's calling you to be generous, especially with your finances, don't let your circumstances judge the bigness of God. Don't let you sit there and say, well, my bank account defines what I can do. No way, your God is bigger than that. God even says in his word that he gives seed to the sower. You know, when you go back and you start to challenge and you start to doubt your situation, look back. How, how faithful has your God been to you? Look at his generosity. Look at what he's doing. Step out of faith. Be bold. If you get it wrong, Romans 8 says that all things work together for good. Even if you get it wrong, it's going to be good. Right? If you get it right, it's going to be good. If you get it wrong, God's going to turn it out to be good. But God is asking you, inviting you into generosity. Why? Because he's a generous God, much more than you could ever possibly dream or imagine. So as you get challenged over the next little while, as you look at your circumstances and you look at your surroundings and you look at your situations, don't let that define God for you. Let God define your situation. Because when you say, oh, God, God, I can't do that. you were actually saying that that situation's bigger than God. It's really what you say. is what I've said. God, I can't afford to give. I don't. My doesn't allow me that. Basically, I'm saying, well, that's bigger than God. God say, no, nah, man. I'm huge. Look what I've done for you. Look what I've shown you. Look what I've seen and heard. And God builds up faith. God will never leave you nor forsake you. That God is a generous God. And our response is, God, you can have it all, right? God, surrender everything. That's the invitation he has. That includes all areas of our lives and and financials, which is always one of the biggest challenges that we have. But God is bigger than your bank account. God is bigger than your situation. We serve and we worship a, a big, big, generous, loving God. So would you be willing to stand this morning and worship? You can have it all. God and mean it. So I invite you to stand and worship because we serve an almighty Father who loves us. Amen.